through verse 28. Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 14, it can be found on page 1047 and 1048 in your pew Bible, if you would like. There is also in your, uh, your fun-sized bulletin this morning, on page 5, an outline for our time together. As you're turning, uh, a couple things to bring to your attention. First of all, um, uh, cover your prayers this week. It's Simeon Trust Week, and so we'll be at Zion Church in Lincoln. I think there are something like 72 guys who are coming. Uh, we'll be going through the book of Exodus, and so it's one of my favorite weeks of the year. I hate that they moved it, and it now always coincides with when we do the, the Halloween walk, but that's, that's uh, simply how it is. And so covet your prayers this week as guys come together and we're, we're just trying to get better in, in our ability to read and handle God's word well. And so if you would be in prayer uh, for that, that uh, I have to be there Tuesday, but it runs, the workshop itself runs Wednesday through Friday morning. Um, secondly, I've been thinking about, and several of you have said, hey, uh, now that you're abandoning us, um, are, are we going to change the sermon series? I'm kidding with the abandoning, mostly. Um, <laughs> are you going to change the sermon series? And initially I said, no, we're going to keep doing what we've been doing. But I do think uh, probably the last two weeks that we're here, uh, we are going to sit down and think together biblically about why it is uh, that we do what we do when we gather together as a church on Sunday morning. Uh, simply because a church is a a PCA church does not mean that they structure what they do on a Sunday morning the way that we do. And I want to make sure that you understand there are, uh, there are biblical reasons for that. There are missiological reasons for that. And there are confessional reasons that shape why it is that we do what we do. And as Les and I have been talking, uh, one of the things that we both know and are excited about, and at the same time terrified about, is uh, the Lord knows who the next pastor is, and, and he may have a different approach. And that's fine. And I want you to hear me say that. This is not my church. This is Jesus' church. Uh, he died for you. I did not. I muck about trying to be your pastor, but I am, I am not him. Uh, and, but I do, I, I do think it is important to understand why it is that we have chosen over the years to structure, why it is we do what we do on a Sunday morning. To be honest with you, 13 years ago, I could not have articulated those things. Uh, but I think it is by God's grace that now I can. So Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 14. Now he, being Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. But if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. 
But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when stronger, when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. And he said these, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you, and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, now bless these few moments. Do so for the glory of your great name and for the good of your people who are called by your name. For we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've seen, this particular section in Luke's gospel is teaching his disciples and us exactly what it looks like to live a life of following him. Starting in chapter 9, verse 37, and ending when he enters into Jerusalem for the Passover, Jesus is giving us an owner's manual for discipleship. Now, as we're going to see this morning, Jesus is teaching his disciples and us that being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ means you should expect opposition. Not that opposition might come, or if you're really super spiritual, there will be no opposition, but that we should actually, as Christians, expect that in our walk with Jesus, we will be opposed. Now, this in and of itself is actually a very helpful bit of information. I realize it's probably not a welcome bit of information, but it is helpful. You see, I've met and counseled folks over the years who thought that being a disciple of Jesus Christ was then a cure-all of any kind of hardship in their life. Once they became a Christian, they thought their lives would become an endless string of victories and successes. And so they are shocked when they face opposition. They think somehow either Jesus is at fault or their faith is somehow deficient. They shouldn't be shocked, but they are. So let's stop here, and let me ask you just a simple question as we begin. Uh, when you face opposition in your walk with Jesus, do you actually expect it? Has it ever entered your mind that being a Jesus follower means you're going to face opposition? Uh, we have this thing in our household. I, I say thing. Uh, I'll, I'll just say it as it is. She's upstairs, so you can tell her later. Uh, Big Amy likes to scare people. Loves it. In fact, uh, there are stories from work, I'm told, of my wife scaring coworkers. 
you would think that at five foot one inches, she would not be quite so physically intimidating, but apparently she, she is. Uh, there's that too. So she, she's fond of scaring people, but, and, and she does it at other places because now in our household, uh, we all expect that if Amy's in the house, she will probably at some point try to scare you. Uh, so when you know that and you expect it, it gets harder, right? Uh, it was funny because when we were all together for Chattanooga, apparently Gabrielle had forgotten in the joy of the fact that she was about to become Mrs. Stutz, that her mom has this tendency. And so Amy got her really good uh, on the Saturday before she was to be married. But see, if you expect something... If you have some anticipation that this is coming down the pipe, it can be easier to deal with it. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. And if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, opposition will come into your life. Now, this particular phenomenon is not something new. It's not that we live in really dark and unprecedentedly evil time. No, Martin Luther famously wrote and preached that a Christian faces three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is that sphere or group of people who have no love for the things of God or the gospel. They can either be openly hostile to the gospel, or sometimes it takes the form of a kind of cold indifference. The flesh is that remaining tendency to sin in my own life. We've lamented this often. Uh, so many days we get up, we look in the mirror, and we think to ourselves, the number one enemy of my walk with Jesus is staring me in the face as I speak. The devil is Satan, and all of those fallen angels are demons who align themselves with Satan in his vain attempt to overthrow God. As we're going to see this morning, the three are interrelated. They work in a kind of dastardly harmony to shipwreck the, like, the life of faith of a follower of Jesus. And so uh, we see Jesus confront and give much-needed instruction this morning as to how we are to deal with the world and then the devil. How do we deal with the world and the devil? We know that opposition is coming. We know that we face three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. So Jesus this morning is telling us, this is how we deal with the world, and this is how we deal with the devil. So that brings us to our big idea, and here it is. Living in God's kingdom means thinking and acting rightly when opposition invariably comes. Living in God's kingdom means thinking and acting rightly when opposition invariably comes. It isn't just about doing the right thing. It's also about understanding rightly what it is that's going on when we face opposition. Two points we want to make this morning. Uh, the first is a question, really? Really? Luke opens this particular teaching section on discipleship with Jesus doing Jesus things. Now, in the previous section, when Luke was helping us to answer the question, who is this? Like, who is this man? Is, is he the God-man? Is he the Messiah? In that section... We had lots of miracles happening. Jesus was demonstrating the power of God as it operated through him. And Luke is using that to help us paint a picture so that we would answer rightly the question, who is this? 
But now, Jesus' teaching comes to front and center and miracles take a back seat. And so we have a rare miracle in this particular section in which Jesus heals a mute man. And in this particular case of mutism, is demonic in nature. And so once Jesus casts out the demon, the mute man can speak. The response to this is mixed. There are some who, not surprisingly, marvel. Look at verse 14. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. It's a pretty amazing thing. Here's a guy who cannot speak, who Jesus casts out a demon, and now all of a sudden he can speak. Yes, that's an understatement to say that the people would marvel at this. However, verse 15 begins with that conjunction, but. Yes, some of the people are marveling. However, there are others who are absolutely opposed to what Jesus has done. And so they state, incredibly, verse 15, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, keep seeking from him a sign from heaven. Now, Jesus is going to show them just how ridiculous their line of thinking is. And he does so in a way that leaves no doubt to his identity. Look at verse 17. But he, knowing their thoughts, stunning, isn't it? Jesus casts a demon out of a mute man. The mute man speaks. Some of the people marvel. And then some of the people claim that he's casting out demons because he is the prince or by the prince of demons. Others say, hey, that's great, but we really need a sign from heaven. Jesus knows exactly what they are thinking. And then he goes on to show them that their opposition is logically flawed. Their hatred for him means that they cannot think straight. Hey, if Satan is warring against Satan, then guess what? He's not going to last. As Abraham Lincoln famously quoted, every house divided against itself, or a house divided against itself cannot stand. Jesus points out to them that what they are saying makes absolutely no sense. Their hatred of him is so great that they're willing to put forward these nonsensical arguments because they do not want to face the reality of who he really and truly is. Well, Jesus ups it. He takes it even a step higher. He doesn't just remind them that what they're saying makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. But he tells them in verse 20, But if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Again, Jesus is here intentionally quoting from the Old Testament. Remember, the magicians in Egypt had to grudgingly admit that what was being done with the gnats to Pharaoh was by the finger of God. They themselves, they were just magicians. They made no claims to being divine. And Pharaoh, who did claim to be divine, needed to understand that this was the work of God. Now, Jesus is pointing out to them, not only is this God at work, but they now are fulfilling the role of the magicians 
and Pharaoh. Now, let's understand that this particular confrontation and the way that it unfolds is helpful for us on two fronts. The first is in our own walk with Jesus, and the second is on those occasions in which we seek to share the good news of Jesus. Hopefully, as you've walked as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you've faced questions and comments from non-Christian friends and family who have no idea why it is you're living the life, the, your life the way that you do. And the more you try to explain it, the more confused and belligerent and, and incredulous they become. Please understand, this is not a strange thing. In fact, you ought to expect it to be that way. Friends, if Jesus does something as amazing as casting a demon out of a mute man and the mute man speaks and people misunderstand it, how much more will they misunderstand the nature and shape and worship that is now going on in your life as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have very different loves now. What you fear has changed. How you speak, how you think, how you act, the things that you find praiseworthy, all of that has changed as a result of your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And your non-Christian friends and relatives and associates and neighbors, they're not going to get it. It doesn't mean that you're weird. Well, a little bit. It doesn't mean that you're doing it wrong. It means that just as Jesus faced opposition, we're going to face opposition as well. We said it's helpful in two ways, not just in our own walk with Jesus, but also as we try to share the gospel, as we seek to do the work of evangelism. See, as we try to share Jesus with others, we can fall into the trap of thinking, you know, if I can just make the right argument, the one that they can't refute, the one that is so airtight and so rock solid, they're going to see the awesomeness of Jesus and the gospel on bad days, we would see, I want them to see the awesomeness of my own intellect and my own position. But listen, if I just get the right argument, then they're going to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a fancy name for that kind of evangelism. It's known as evidentialism. In other words, if I just present and package the evidence in the right way and in the correct way, then my non-Christian friend, relative, associate, or neighbor, they have to become a Christian. They just have to. Because it's presented in such a way that only a foolish person wouldn't see the truth of the gospel. Now friends, let's remember, in this text there's a crowd of people who have just seen Jesus heal a guy. And then on top of that, he tells them what they're thinking and yet they don't believe. See, this is not at all about a reasonable argument. This is not about seeing the evidence and reaching the proper conclusions. Reason has left the building. 
These are folks who are motivated and fueled by a hatred and disbelief of Jesus and the gospel. Well, if that's true, then how does anybody ever become a Christian? Well, we sang about it. When we sang the words, all praise to the Spirit whose whisper divine makes mercy and pardon and righteousness mine. Friends, we need the work of the Holy Spirit. Logically compelling arguments are nice, and we want to make them. But let's not understand that we will not, we will never, ever argue folks into the kingdom of God. We need to pray that the Spirit of God would move and would do what only He can do. Remember in the upper room discourse, Jesus told his disciples, hey, I'm leaving, but that's actually a good thing. And it's a good thing because the Spirit is coming. And it's the Spirit who's going to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness. We need the work of the Spirit. Because the hatred and opposition of the world for the gospel is such that it cannot be overcome by logic. No, this is a, this is a, this is a spiritual battle. And we need the Holy Spirit to make mercy and pardon and righteousness ours. Secondly, then, we need to hold the tension. We need to hold the tension. When it comes to being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, it's pretty easy to want to run to extremes. It's pretty easy to lose the fact that that there are always opposite sides of a coin and we have to find ourselves holding both ends of something and not going overboard. That we need to take our cue from the Bible and not our cue from what the notes in our particular study Bible might have to say or what a particular a religious leader or teacher has to say. There is a sense in which all of the Christian life is an art of living intention. Now, Jesus, in our text, has been accused of being in legion with Satan. And he corrects him and says, no, 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 I'm not in legion with Satan. I'm actually the strong man who has bound Satan. Jesus then goes on to give his audience a tutorial on demonic opposition. Now, we're not going to delve into, because we would be here for about three Sundays trying to figure out what we're supposed to do with verses 24 to 26. And there are all kinds of positions. There's a whole spectrum of things. And at the end of the day, uh, none of it sounded compelling. And it all sounded, it, it all, it, yeah, I, I, there was none of it that I thought we can bring it to folks and this is going to be for your good. But here's what we can understand. We can understand that there are two great mistakes that we make when it comes to Satan and the demonic. The first mistake we make is to think to ourselves, it's not an issue. It doesn't exist. It doesn't affect me. Satan is this great fairy tale because if there's a good guy in the story, namely God in the Bible, then there needs to be a bad guy, Satan. And so the first mistake we can make when it comes to how we think and act related to this kind of satanic opposition is to go, it doesn't exist at all. That's one extreme. Here's the other extreme. The other extreme is to think that everything has to do with Satan. 
that every time we have a thought that is contrary to a thought that we know is God-honoring, or every time we do something that we know is not God-pleasing, though we like it, it's a great temptation to say, oh, well, the devil made me do it. It's a great temptation to every time we turn around and see evil in the world, not to chalk that up to the fact that human beings are fallen and we live in a fallen world, but to attribute everything that's contrary to God somehow to the work and activity of Satan and his minions. But here's the second great mistake, that everything is Satan's. Satan and God are up in heaven dueling it out. We hope in the end that God wins, but we're not quite sure. The end of the book seems to suggest it, but we have that great showdown in Armageddon. But what if that changes? What if God somehow doesn't win? Now, the, the wonderful uh, book on this historically and the great treatment of this was not surprisingly written by C.S. Lewis, his little book called The Screwtape Letters. And it's the letters of an older uncle demon to a younger nephew demon, and he's giving him advice because the younger nephew demon's charge has become a Christian. And so the first part of the advice that uh, Screwtape gives to his nephew Wormwood is to say this, uh, if all else fails, simply convince your client or your subject that we don't exist. Just convince him we don't exist. Evil's not a thing. The satanic, the demonic, it doesn't exist. He says, and if that fails, just get him to just get him convinced or plant the, the thought in plant the seed in his mind that actually we're everywhere. You can't move a muscle, and there's not some sort of satanic or demonic opposition. And Lewis points out that the truth is actually in between these two things. When I was in college. At Taylor University, there were two books that came out by an author named Frank Peretti. Some of you may have read them. This is late 80s, early 90s. The first one was called This Present Darkness, and the second one was called Piercing the Darkness. Now, if you went to Ball State or Purdue, the book probably didn't have much of an impact on your campus, but on a campus in the middle of a cornfield where you had to go to chapel three times a week, uh, a campus like Taylor University, it made a huge Impact, And so you had people everywhere seeing the work of the demonic in play in everyday life at Taylor University. And I remember my friend and mentor, Paul House, finally saying to people, listen, uh, if your boyfriend's being a jerk and he broke up with you, it's not because Satan told him to do it. It's because he's just an immature jerk. And it was true. It was true. So hold the tension Satan exists, and the, the Bible tells us that he's a, he's a lion, and he's roaming about uh, the earth, seeking those whom he might devour. He is our adversary. He hates God, and he hates God's people. He is the destroyer, but friends, he is not God's equal. He has been defeated. He is not nothing. He is also not everything. Secondly, we need to hold the tension as it comes to Mary. Jesus is, is doing these amazing things, and he's healed this guy, and he's actually got the Pharisees to be quiet, and he's 
told him all that goes on now, what happens when a, when a demon gets cast out, he finds seven of his buddies and he comes back and we're going, my goodness, who, who would know this? And so finally, some dear woman in the crowd cries out, verse 27, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Now, what's curious here is what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus doesn't stop her and say, no, actually, Mary wasn't blessed. Because you see, that isn't true. Jesus doesn't stop her to correct her view of his earthly mother. And our good Protestant selves have a problem with that. Because we have Catholic friends and relatives and associates and neighbors who pray to Mary and who view Mary as being co-redemptrix with Christ. In other words, Mary is just as responsible for our salvation somehow as the Lord Jesus Christ is. So here's the tension. Is Mary co-redemptrix? No. Should we pray to Mary? Absolutely not. Is Mary blessed? Yes, she is. Jesus does not correct the woman when she cries this out. And by the way, do you remember back in Luke chapter 2? It's about that season, so keep your finger in Luke chapter 11, but turn with me. It's actually Luke chapter 1. In Luke chapter 1, verse 28, we're told about a little work trip that an angel named Gabriel has to take to a city of Galilee called Nazareth. He goes to a virgin and he says to her, verse 28 of Luke chapter 1, Greetings, O favored one. Literally translated, it's greetings, O Blessed one. Carrying the Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate second person of the Trinity, was a great blessing. It was a sign of God's favor. The fact that every promise God has made from Genesis chapter 3 through the entire Bible is being fulfilled in the birth of his son, and that Mary is the human instrument by which God is going to bring his son into the world is indeed an act of blessing. Mary is blessed. And friends, understand this morning that through Mary's blessing and through the favorited position that she has with God, we are blessed as well. Now, this doesn't mean that we pray to her. And it doesn't mean that we say somehow she is equal in our redemption with the Lord Jesus Christ because she's not. There's a, there's a wonderful word for those things. And that word is heresy. The Bible doesn't say that. Jesus has no such qualms in calling his mother blessed. Neither does the angel Gabriel. Neither should we. She's blessed. She is indeed the human mother of God, but we don't pray to her. And she's not co-redemptrix. We need to hold the tension there. Now, we like the last part that Jesus says, don't we? This is almost our Protestant anthem. 
No, blessed is the one who hears the word of God and keeps it. Well, friends, the word of God tells us that Mary is blessed. Let's keep it. How is it Jesus has told us that he's the strong man? So how is it exactly that Jesus shows his strength? How is it that he shows and wins his victory over Satan? Is it that he does a repeat of what happens in the temptation in the wilderness? No. Do uh, Jesus and, and, uh, and Satan somehow have some great face-off, right? They, they meet at high noon and at 50 paces, they're, they're both toting six-shooters and Jesus is just faster and a better shot. No. It's not even those wonderful triumphs of athletic uh, prowess that we would see in those fabulous events known as WrestleMania. This is not best two out of three falls in an iron cage. How does Jesus demonstrate his strength in winning his victory over Satan? He dies. He lays down his life. Friends, remember in verse 20, Jesus says, the finger of God is at work. And if it is the finger of God at work, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And all throughout his gospel, Luke wants us to understand that the kingdom of God is a kingdom of paradox. How does Jesus win? He wins by losing. How does Jesus show his strength? He shows his strength by dying. He lays down his life. So yes, opposition will come to this. Because the entire kingdom is a paradox. The entire kingdom is exactly the opposite of what the world thinks a kingdom is supposed to look like. In a few moments... We're going to remember and celebrate the fact that Jesus laid down his life. That in obedience to God the Father, Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for the paradoxical nature of your kingdom. Thank you for the fact that the Lord Jesus showed his strength through his death. For by his stripes we are healed. Oh Lord, help us this week. Help us as citizens of a kingdom that is indeed paradoxical. Help us not only to expect the opposition, but Father, help us to live lives that give praise and honor and glory to you. Not to our particular positions, not to what we think ought to happen politically or economically, but Father, uh, help us to bear faithful testimony to the work of your Spirit. For we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.